You're listening to Seven Churches, a teaching series at Shoreline Church with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, Shoreliners, time to dig deep in the Word. You guys excited? All right, last week we started a series called Seven Churches from Revelation uh, 1 through 3. And we learned that John... Uh, The apostle was exiled on the rocky island of Patmos, and he basically heard a voice behind him saying uh, some incredible things, and it sounded like a trumpet or the, the rushing of many waters. And so he turns around and he sees Jesus in all of his unveiled glory, like nothing we've ever seen in the scriptures. And we learned last week that Jesus essentially wanted uh, to speak to seven specific churches in Asia Minor. Uh, And he said, John, I want you to write down what was, what is, and what is to come. And so before John moves into what is to come in chapter 4, which a lot of people believe that's where the uh, apocalyptic literature, the eschatology comes in, before he jumps into that, a glimpse of the future, he first tunes into his message today for the church. It was a quite literal seven churches. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be looking at Revelation 1, but I want you for a minute, keep your hand there and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. So turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. And while you're turning there, it's important to note that there's no such thing as the perfect church. Can I get an amen? Amen. There's no such thing as the perfect church. In fact, someone said, if you find the perfect church, don't attend it because you're not perfect and you'll ruin it. And I like that idea. Right? We're never going to come across a perfect church. We can aim high, but we'll never get there. And so with each of these seven churches, Jesus has something to communicate. And listen, they all needed something. They all needed a remedy. And the remedy was, and it still is, Jesus. Amen? We all need Jesus in our church. And so just a quick glance of the seven churches while you're going to the last chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. Look on the screen at the seven churches and what they were struggling with. Just real quick. The church at Ephesus, we'll see today, had neglected their priority. The church in Smyrna that we'll look at next week had satanic opposition. The church in Pergamos, well, they had religious compromise, and we're seeing that today. The church in Thyatira was allowing immoral practices into the church. The church at Sardis had spiritual apathy, and we see that often. The church in Philadelphia, well, They had some lost opportunities, but the Lord was gonna be there to meet those needs. And finally, we see the church in Laodicea, they had allowed material prosperity to blind their relationship to Jesus. And so today we turn our attention to the first of the seven churches, Ephesus. And I ask you to turn to chapter six and look with me at the very last verse of the letter to the church at Ephesus that Paul penned. Look at the last verse. In the New King James, here's what he says. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Another translation, the ESV says, who love the Lord with love incorruptible. Well, sadly, 30 years after he wrote this, we get to Revelation chapter two, where Marcos just read that they had left their first love. 30 years, one generation, they had departed. The love that was incorruptible had become corrupted. Today, you and I, every one of us, the men I just appointed, uh, the men who are sitting among us, the ladies, the older, the younger, everyone in this room today, we need to hear this message to return to our first love. The most important priority that we can have this morning is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I want us to 
pray, and then we'll dive into our time together. And forgive my voice, we'll work through it. It's a little scratchy. Be taking some sips of water here and there. But let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to bless the teaching of his word. Father, we again just thank you for your word, and we ask that you would illuminate this text to us and communicate your heart. Lord, we just confess there is no perfect church because we're not perfect. But Jesus, you are. And you look at your bride, and as we just sang, you see radiance. Uh, you call us radiant, and that's amazing to me because I see flaws and I see problems and I see fickleness in my own heart and many hearts. Lord, we just ask that today that you would be on display, that you would be glorified, and the words that you have for this church would also be, ring true in our own life, that we would listen, that we would heed. He who has ears to hear would hear what your spirit says to our church today. We love you, and we want our love to be expressed, uh, not just with emotion, not just with outward signs, but Lord, from the inner man. And so Lord, bless your word today. Thank you that we're not the only expression of the church here in this region. We think of Pastor Jason and Good Life Church, and uh, thank you for his friendship and their, just their partnership with us. Bless them today, Lord, and continue to allow them to reach our community alongside us effectively. We thank you that we can pray for different churches every week. So we commit them to you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Okay, from Salt Lake City, the headline reads, I do want to hit you with my car. The Associated Press article reads this way. Here's what the article says. It wasn't the most romantic of honeymoons. A police said a groom is in jail, accused of trying to run over his new wife after a weekend wedding in Vegas. I've been to one of those, not my own wedding, but I've been to a weekend wedding in Vegas. The lieutenant spokesman for the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office said, we have a wedding certificate for March 4th. They were still honeymooning when he ran her over. All right, wow, very sad. Apparently two newlyweds were on their honeymoon, they get in an argument, and the husband tried to run over his wife. Needless to say, that marriage was not off to a great start. Marriage, as you know, can be a tricky thing. Anyone married here today? Anyone, or have been married? Right, anyone married or previously married? You're like, yeah, I tried that. All right, you were married. If your marriage is going to survive, you need to learn a few things to help resolve your conflicts in a way that doesn't involve that, running your spouse over. You gotta be able to work things out, okay? That's not the first option. And maybe there's some relationships here today that started out with so much promise. Things were off to a great start. You met each other, you fell in love, you spent tons of time together. After a while, you couldn't imagine spending your life without this person. That was before you got married. <laughs> then you got married. <laughs> you said, wait a minute, he burps and he leaves the toilet seat up, and she's annoying, she's just like her mom. Okay, uh, we start acting this way. Sorry, uh, just being honest. Now, now there's mortgage payments, and there's kids, and, and there's puppies, and there's money problems, and so on and so on. And so all these things pull on us, and the demands just become insane, and that, that love relationship begins to suffer a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, we start throwing stress and problems. And then one day, what, what actually could happen is that you look across the table at someone and you go, I don't know you anymore. You're, you're a stranger. The person I fell in love with, well, I, I don't know who you are. You're not the person I married. And so our love for one another can actually grow distant. It can grow cold. And little cracks turn into big chasms. And marriage sometimes heads to divorce court. We could say this, the honeymoon the honeymoon's over, the honeymoon's over. And so in the Bible, on more than one occasion, God compares his love for us as that of a husband for a wife. Notice in Jeremiah 2.2, the New Living captures it well. 
I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. Now, that's Israel's relationship with God likened to a marriage that started out with a hopeful honeymoon, but soon began to come apart at the seams. And our relationship with God can be the same way as Christians. As a Christian, do you remember those first few moments where you knew the Lord Jesus? Do you remember those first days where you kind of got lost in time with him? Your sins were forgiven and your walls of bitterness and anger and excuses just came crumbling down and you experienced peace, shalom, for the first time in your life. You experienced wholeness and fullness filled with God, flooded with a wave of peace and joy that surpassed all human understanding. You remember those days? Remember those days where you just lost time where you're spending with God, you just worship and sing and you'd cry and you'd weep and, and everything that you did was just thinking about him and you were thrilled to go to church. It didn't matter how cold it was or how scratchy the pastor's voice was. You just couldn't wait to be there to just sit under his word. Does that stir up any memories? Is that how things are today or have things changed? Maybe the honeymoon is over. And I think this is an accurate description of what happened to the first of the seven churches. The church at Ephesus had begun well with so much promise, but they began, listen, to get busy. And when they began getting busy working for Jesus, well, they completely forgot about their love relationship with Jesus in the process. And he captures it so eloquently when Jesus says, you've left your first love. You've left it. Now, if you're taking notes, something we're gonna see about each of these seven churches is um, this is kind of a template or an outline for each one of these uh, every week. So what we're gonna see is we're gonna see a little bit about the city. So this, this is a city he's speaking to in the church that met there, all right? He's gonna address a specific location. And this is not fantasy and folklore. These are actual cities that existed with a real pastor who took this letter and read it. Okay, so this actually existed. Secondly, we're gonna see a characteristic of Christ Jesus to this individual church will highlight a different part of who he is, but listen, he'll reference back to chapter one, what we learned last week. If you missed last week, gotta go on our website and listen to it, get an amazing glimpse of who Jesus is, and he'll take one of those attributes or a few and connect that from chapter one to the church. Thirdly, we're gonna see a commendation. Everyone knows what a commendation is? It's a thumbs up. Can you guys give me a thumbs up? Unless you're taking notes, the thumbs up. Yeah, hey, good job. We all need a commendation from time to time. You're doing a good job. Keep it up. Well done. You come into work and the boss says, hey, good job today. You showed up on time. I'm happy about that. Commendation. So Jesus has a word of encouragement. But there's also, in almost every church, a criticism. Can we see a thumbs down? You can do it. That's all right. Thumb now, so, no one take a picture right now of the church giving me a thumbs down. All right, so we've got a criticism. Jesus needs to rebuke these churches for something. Um, and then, but he doesn't leave us there. And this is what I love. There's also correction. See, Jesus this morning isn't here to condemn you. We're already condemned, the scripture tells us in John chapter three. We already stand condemned. Uh, we're born as children of wrath. So today, until Christ meets your need of salvation, you are condemned. And I can say that smiling because I have the answer for you. The answer is we're already condemned, but you know what? In Christ, there is no condemnation because of what Christ has done at the cross there's correction. See, there's a difference. Jesus comes. He doesn't condemn you to hell if you're in Christ. He says, no, let me correct you. You're sinning. Let me fix it. He never leaves you in a place where you're just like, well, I don't know what to do. I just feel awful. He always corrects you. And so the correction will be to help you change and grow. And if there's ever a feeling or a thought that you have that says you're never going to make it, you're never good enough, 
That's not from the Lord, that's from Satan. That's condemnation, okay? So we're gonna see correction on how to get back uh, to being commendable. And finally, there's a crown. There's a crown, something that Jesus wants to reward all of the churches, saying, if you do this, if you overcome, there's a reward for you. All right, so that's our template. You guys good with that? That's how we're gonna go each of these weeks. Let's start today with the city. Look back at chapter two, verse one. Marcos just read it. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Okay, Ephesus was a major port city on the western coast of Asia Minor, a seaborne trade and the hub of the region's road system. I think we have a picture of that road in, uh, yeah, there it is, in living color, okay? So they had a thriving urban community of about 200 to 300,000 people, much like Tampa Bay. Uh, the city of Tampa proper would be about the size of Ephesus. Uh, it was also very open to port trading, so very similar to Tampa. Um, it also, in the first century AD, was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire uh, in that area. Interesting as well that Tampa's the fourth largest city in the southeast behind Miami, Jacksonville, and Atlanta. So the Romans made Ephesus this administrative center, world-renowned shrines. I think we have a slide of, this, of the theater. Um, this is a black and white sketch of the theater, of how it may have looked, but here's the actual theater from the other view. Uh, built right into the side of the mountain. Incredible, you would oversee the, uh, the port. Just a very beautiful city, okay? But don't get the idea that this is a clean administrative Mecca. No, no, no. It was a city with rampant paganism. There was the worship and manufacture and sale of fertility idols of the goddess Artemis or Diana, uh, whose idol is depicted, many people believe, with dozens of breasts. And so these were these little idols that they would give out. Uh, I think we have a picture of her actual temple this grand temple, and they would say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, they had a huge volume of occultic arts and practices, and that, that temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and the largest religious structure in the entire region. Now, Paul had founded a church there, and Timothy was their pastor. Uh, later, church history says that John came to minister there, and they had the benefit of God working powerfully in this dark city, known for its worship of the false goddess Diana or Artemis. Okay, remember, this is where the people, remember this, where they brought their handkerchiefs and their aprons that touched Paul and they were healed? It's kind of an interesting thing that happened. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. Demetrius the silversmith started a riot because he thought he'd lose his business. I don't know if you remember that in the book of Acts. Um, this is a city with great opposition and great opportunity. And I think that we today have that same uh, spot in, in the state of Florida. We have a city where there's some great opposition and great opportunity as the Lord moves. And so that's the city of Ephesus to which he's writing. Now let's see the characteristic. Look at the rest of verse one in chapter two. Uh, the characteristic Jesus decides to point to. He says in the uh, rest of verse one, these things says two things. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand and secondly, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Okay, notice that the seven golden lampstands there, you might wanna circle that, that is a picture of the church. So he's saying these seven churches, I'm in the midst of them, I'm there, I'm right among them. Uh, but, and that's kind of reminiscent of uh, the menorah uh, that the Jews would uh, ascribe to. Uh, the picture being of the light of the world, and Jesus said we are the light of the world, we're a lampstand burning for others to see. Um, notice that he's holding, he's with the church, but he's also holding the seven stars in his right hand. Uh, now, these two ideas are a picture uh, of intimacy. 
He's among the church and he's holding the church. Let me just talk about those real quick. First of all, he holds the church, it says, in his right hand. The right hand. So apparently he's not a southpaw like me, but um, this is in scripture the hand of blessing. The hand of blessing. Mentioned hundreds of times throughout the Bible. Almost always with the blessing of God. He's, he holds the church in his right hand. Uh, and he's not gonna let us go. I, I um, watched years ago a kind of a horrific story that happened in a baseball game. Some of you know Josh Hamilton. I think he was a Texas Ranger at that time. And there was a firefighter who decided to take his six-year-old son to see the game. And they're over in the stands. There was kind of a, a foul ball. And Josh Hamilton picked up the ball and went to toss it into the stands. And the dad of this son went to reach for it and he toppled over the side. Well, his son and the person sitting next to him went to reach for him and he slipped, the father slipped through their hands, fell about two stories down on his head and died right there in that moment. It's an awful thing. And Josh Hamilton was really broken about that. Uh, sad story, the boy ended up becoming friends with him and got to throw out the first game ball and there was a statue made of him, uh, he and his father in front of the stadium. And so I know uh, that's been a few years, but um, he slipped through these uh, two people's hands. He slipped through. And uh, some of us have bad theology about God in the same way that, well, if I'm just one mistake away, God's, I'm gonna slip out of God's hands. I'm gonna be out of his reach. I'm not gonna be able to uh, be held by him. But the scriptures promise, guys, he'll never let us go. He holds us in his right hand. He's not gonna let us escape, slip through, get away. Uh, you aren't gonna fall on his watch. He'll sovereignly keep you. He'll hold you. He'll watch over you. You can rest in his arms today. I love that, the picture of, of being held. Um, secondly, Jesus walks among the churches. He's with us, right? He's not far off, distant, untouchable, unreachable, uh, kind of someone you need to dial long distance to that we even have long distance anymore, but uh, he's right here among us. He's here with us. He wants us to be at peace in his presence. Theologically, that's the balance between uh, his transcendence and his eminence. He's both transcendent, he's far above his creation, but he's also imminent among his creation. He's with us. What a great picture of Jesus' steadfast love. He says, hey, I'm writing, I'm the one who's with you. I wanna be intimate with you. I want a relationship with you. And yet you have left your first love. So let's look at, it, at the con, uh, commendation starting in verse two. Verse two, he says, I know your works. Would you underline that today? I know your works. Can we get an amen for that? I know your works. You know, it's going unnoticed often. I know some wives here that are doing a lot of hard work and there's an unbelieving husband and the Lord says, I know your works. I know the prayer you're putting out. I know that you're constantly doing the dishes and loving on him and he's not noticing it. He doesn't come to church with you. I know your works. There's some parents here today who have been ministering and pouring into your kids and now they're grown and they're far from him. And the Lord says, I know your works. I know the prayer and the intercession you've been giving. Some of you here today, you're, you're trying beyond uh, what we see here Sunday morning just to live for the Lord and, and do work for him. And he says, I know it, I know it, I see it. I see the works. He, then he goes on, he says, your labor, your patience, you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. You've persevered, you have patience, you've labored for my namesake and you've not become weary. Look down at verse six with me. He says, this you also have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Wow. Church, we need a commendation sometimes, don't we? We need just like a pat on the back, like it's okay, you're, you're doing all right, you're doing well. Sometimes we always give negative feedback. So what'd you think of uh, that movie? 
Oh, I just hated that Luke wasn't there the whole time. Spoiler alert. I hated the movie. It's not like Star Wars. A lot of times we give negative feedback all the time. Well, I like the church, but it's kind of cold in there, and they need to figure that heat thing out. We always seem to get negative feedback often. Right? We talk about, you know, what'd you think of the dinner? You know, the, the restaurant manager comes up. What'd you think of the meal? And we're like, we usually go, oh, it was fine. And later on Yelp, it was awful, right? We, we give negative feedback. But here, it's good to receive a commendation, uh, to get positive feedback. I call this the rule of the 10%, the rule of the 10. Jesus healed 10 lepers. One of them came back. One. And so the, the law of 10%. We usually only get the positive feedback from about 10%. And so Jesus commends them for three things if you're taking note. Let's jot these down. Jesus commends the church at Ephesus, number one, for duty, D-U-T-Y. They were hardworking, busy ministers. You could nickname them the Church of St. Martha. They were just busy, busy. Lots of work. But listen, busyness in a church doesn't always mean that the spirit is at work. Right? Often when things are simple, you can focus your energy on what's most important, like Acts 2.42, instead of all the tertiary side stuff that churches expend their energy doing. But Jesus, he was commending them. Hey, I know your works, you're doing a lot, your labor, I see it. Secondly, um, doctrine. The church at Ephesus, he says, you cannot bear those who are evil. I love this, they would vet, they would test, they would confirm if someone was true or false according to biblical orthodoxy. And if they were false, the church would have nothing to do with their teaching. Notice, he says, you cannot bear those who are evil, verse three. Would you circle the word bear? It's the same word used of Jesus bearing the cross. He's saying you can't even carry that weight of someone who's a false teacher. You can't even carry that weight. You can't even bear it. Uh, You get rid of them. Uh, You don't tolerate it. And that's a great place to be. The church of Ephesus knew their doctrine. They knew what they believed. Would that the church of Jesus Christ today be more like the church of Ephesus on that note? And many Christians today can't even explain the gospel plainly or even communicate sound doctrine. It's so critical that we grow in sound doctrine. We have a resource center uh, in the back, uh, I guess to your left, that we constantly have resources available. Today, Mary said, hey, we have the seven churches of Revelation chart. I will not be reading this, so I'm not cheating for my preaching, but this is something that's an extra resource. And then the uh, prophecy, Revelation chapters one through five, J. Vernon McGee is a good resource. We have other resources on our website, but it's important that we grow in sound doctrine. I read, or I saw that Michael Scott on The Office, he said, uh, Jesus can, I don't know if you heard this, Jesus can heal leopards. And I was like, wait a minute, leopards? And uh, it's so true, not that Jesus heals leopards, but that most people don't know who Jesus is. They don't know sound doctrine. Um, There is a particular group, notice in verse six, that the church at Ephesus was vigilant against. Uh, Marcos read it earlier, the church um, was rejecting the doctrine or the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Would you circle that word, Nicolaitans? Now, supposedly these guys were a sect of Christians that descended from one of the original seven deacons from Acts chapter six. He was a convert to Judaism named Nicholas from Antioch. You know, you've probably only heard of Stephen from that list who was martyred. But uh, let me reintroduce you to Nicholas. Here's Acts uh, chapter six. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, I guess Pumbaa was in there somewhere, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, there he is, from Antioch, a convert to Judaism, 
they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. These would be biblical deacons. These can be men or women. Deacons, leaders over ministries. Now notice uh, there is Nicholas. Okay, the word Nicolaitan, I think we have this definition, means conquering the people. It comes from two Greek words, uh, Nico, which means to lord over, and then laetan or laity, which would be the people in the church. So the idea here is that the Nicolaitans wanted there to be a distinction, we go this way, a distinction between the body and the leadership. In other words, the leadership's untouchable. You don't mess with the leaders. We're, we're lording it over. We're in charge. And everyone else is way down here. We have a pyramid structure where the CEO's at the top and everyone does what he wants them to do. And that's how we roll. That's the Nicolaitan idea. We want authority. We want recognition. We want honor. Okay? Now, it's interesting. Church leadership, it should be respectable and approachable. And I don't think there's anything more pungent to God, more repulsive to Jesus when he walked the earth in humanity than religious leaders who tried to separate from the people uh, in this hierarchy. And so you may have heard of pyramid leadership. At Shoreline, we actually use the inverted pyramid. It's backwards, where uh, the pyramid usually is, is uh, where the leader's on top, right? And so here at Shoreline, our philosophy of ministry is that the men we just prayed for today and myself are servants at the bottom, the servants of all. We're not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, and so the church is then supported and prayed for and loved on by the leadership, not the other way around. Totally different diagram, isn't it? Totally different. Now, the Nicolaitans would not like that very much. They'd be very upset about that. Not only did the Nicolaitans conquer the people with lording over leadership, but they also enticed the people to sensuality. And they said the only way to understand your flesh is just to totally give into it. And so the church of Ephesus hated that kind of teaching. And we'll see in a few weeks the church in Thyatira tolerated and even put up with it because they didn't have guts to confront people about sin. We'll talk about that then, but the church in Ephesus stood up for truth and they didn't tolerate false doctrine. So we have duty, we have doctrine. And then thirdly, Jesus commended their determination. I love this. They were persevering, they're hanging in there despite all the hardship and opposition and suffering. And Jesus says, you've not become weary. That's amazing. These were the marathon runners of the church. Jen and I um, went away on Sunday and Monday. We got to go up to Orlando and we actually were just relaxing. It was a little cold for Florida and so we were relaxing in the hot tub and this couple came and got in the hot tub next to us. It was a very big hot tub. And so they got in the hot tub next to us and, uh, and the guy was like, oh. And he's, and he's making all these like guttural sounds. I'm like, are you okay? And he goes, well, I just ran uh, my wife and I, she wasn't making noise, but apparently he was sore. They had just ran the Disney uh, marathon. Now, this is pretty intriguing for marathons. You, he got to run through all four parks while they're open and basically run through the parks. Okay, that told me two things. First of all, uh, I, I think it's pretty amazing that Disney does that, that they open up their parks and let people run marathons. Secondly, I knew it was about 26 miles when I walked through those four parks. I knew it. It's a long distance walk. I'm, I can say I've walked a marathon apparently. And so many people give up their faith. They're not marathon style runners spiritually. They give up. They don't persevere. Those of you who run marathons or half marathons, 5Ks, um, you know that beyond a certain point, you want to give in, you want to give up. And, and you start to sweat and you start to feel it, but it's pushing through. It's hupomone, it's endurance, it's perseverance. And this is the church at Ephesus. What a great thing to be commended for. With all these positives, I wish we could stop there and say, amen, let's bring the band up and let's close in a time of worship. But 
See, Jesus wants them to know that you can do amazing things for God, but if you've separated yourself from God, it doesn't matter. Look at verse four. See the criticism. Jesus says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. You haven't lost it. You won't lose it, but you've left it. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, and then repent and do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. That could be a picture of the pastor. The lampstand could be a picture of their influence in the city, being a light. I'll remove it. You won't have any influence anymore. You'll still be in name and and word, but it won't be effective. The church at Ephesus had their doctrine down, but no devotion. Later we'll see Thyatira has the love down, but no doctrine. And we need a good balance of truth and love. And the church here was a busy, successful church, but they were so busy they'd forgotten God. They knew what doctrines to believe, one pastor says. They knew what doctrines to believe, but they had neglected who the doctrines pointed to. And Jesus says, you've forsaken your first love. Here's what that word means, forsake. If you're taking note, it means to leave, to neglect, to set aside, to abandon, to desert, disown, or turn your back on. The church as a group had lost the intimacy that they once knew with God. It's interesting that they lived in a city, as we just mentioned, known for its worship of Artemis or Diana. Uh, I don't know if you know about Artemis. She was known as the goddess of the hunt or uh, the goddess of children and animals. Very independent, very frivolous. She was known for not being faithful to her husband, uh, though she was considered an eternal virgin. Interesting. Ephesus, known for worshiping a goddess who would have no intimacy with a man, had a church that had lost its intimacy with Christ. I wonder what happens in our own life when we do that, when we forsake a love relationship. What does that look like? Since we're asking that question, here's the second question. What happens when you return to a love? What does that look like? If you think about the qualities that go into a love relationship and, and what that looks like, some of you don't have to think too hard. You just look over to your left or right and there you can get the glimpse of what a love relationship looks like. If you're, having to, if you're single and you're sitting next to another single person, I'm sorry I said that today, uh, but maybe that's the Lord. I don't know, maybe she's the future wife, who knows. Think about that. When you first met them, there's laughter and there's newness and there's joy and there's excitement. And some of you ladies wrote his name down, your, his last name with your name, and you thought, what would that be like? What would it, what would it, what would it some of you were like, no, I'm gonna hyphenate my name. Okay, I get it. You smile whenever you thought about them. Just them in the room lit up your face. Remember ladies when you first loved your now husbands? Remember when they were charming? <laughs> when they were handsome? <laughs> when they were romantic? Remember when you wrote his last name down? Remember you had our song? It was your song, right? It would come on, it would capture the connection that you both had. Maybe it was a song like, I will always love you. And you can just hear Whitney belting it out. Right? That's our song, I love it. Or maybe it was endless love, a little more classic. This endless love, right, you're singing it. Or when a man loves a woman, you're like, you need to listen to this song, honey. This is what it should be, when a man loves a woman. But maybe times have changed. Maybe now it's, you've lost that loving feeling, you know. <laughs> or maybe it's someone like you with Adele. That's what you're singing now. You're singing Adele. The honeymoon is over. Well, in like manner, we can leave our first love. We can leave our first love, the Lord Jesus. In fact, if you're taking note, there's actually four ways that we can leave our first love. I want you to jot these down. 
spend some time on this. Four ways that we leave our first love. First of all, we replace love with law. You know, we erroneously think that God wants us just to follow a simple list of principles and then that equates to relationship. Now, I have to be careful here because Jesus did say in John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me, okay? Obviously, the best expression of love for God is to obey his commands. But the danger is when we equate love with merely principles, okay? You understand the difference? If we love him, we will obey him. But if we just obey him, that doesn't equate to loving him and just having rules and guidelines and serving him out of duty, not desire. And we see lots of people doing things out of obligation, uh, the military, employees, salesmen, and even love relationships out of just obligation. Family Feud asked 100 people recently, rate your marriage on a scale of one to 10. You know what the number one answer was? One. That's interesting. That's what happens when we leave our first love, when we leave our love relationship. It's an obligation, it's not love. Does that describe you here today? in your relationship with God, it's just law. I do these things, God, and I check it off, and that means we're good. Or is it a deep abiding relationship? Secondly, we can replace love with emotion. And we think as long as, hey, I'm raising my hands today, so I'm in love with you, Lord. In fact, I'm fully surrendered. My hands are way up today. In fact, I want everyone to see my Apple Watch, so I'm gonna wave it so it kind of makes that, that, that signal. I want everyone to see it, right? And so, or, or we're, we're doing our hands out here. Um, or we feel I must prayest in Old English, right, so that God will hear my petitions. Uh, some of us, we pray the same thing over and over and over. And we say, Lord God, Lord God, Lord, we just say the, you know, the same title for God. Uh, or that when we come to church, I have to feel God, I have to experience him. And the danger is that we begin to equate, listen, God's presence with an event. As long as God showed up and did something, then his presence is here. There's some event that happened. I have to feel a goosebump or someone has to receive a word from the Lord or feel his touch or get saved for God's presence to be here. His presence is here. Uh, I love what Spurgeon said. He said, that devotion, which must always show itself by shouting, may be very genuine, but it is to be feared that it is superficial. I love this. Deep waters run silently. I love that. Great feeling is dumb. There is a frost of the mouth when there is a thaw of the soul. Wait, does that mean I should never show emotion? Well, of course not. God created us with emotions, so we would be minimizing the imago Dei if we suppressed any and all emotions. Okay, Jesus, remember, wept over Jerusalem. He wasn't just like, oh, there's tears coming down. I don't know what happened, guys. Can you look into this? He wept over Jerusalem. He had compassion. It's the only time the word is used. He had compassion for the crowds. It's, it's almost like it, it hit him in the gut when he saw the crowds who were as sheep without shepherds. He had anger for the money changers. He wasn't just like robotic, like I have to be angry because my father's angry. No, he was angry. He, he made a whip. Jesus made a whip. What did that look like? He didn't come with a whip. He made it. He's like, hang on. I gotta rope this together. I'm coming for you guys. You better get out of here. Take those birds and get moving. He made a whip, right? He's cracking it. Um, we read in scripture, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. These are emotional responses. And listen, we'd be truncating our love for God if we were always suppressing joy or sadness. But listen carefully, we don't base the quality or reality of our love simply on how we raise our hands, how we pray our prayers, or how we cry our tears. Dr. M. Scott Peck says this, genuine love is volitional rather than emotional. The person who truly loves does, does so because of a decision to love. This person has made a commitment to be loving whether or not the loving feeling is present. If it is, so much the better. But if it isn't, 
the commitment to love, the will to love still stands and is still exercised. Conversely, it is not only possible but necessary for a loving person to avoid acting on feelings of love. He goes on and he says, I may meet a woman who strongly attracts me, whom I feel like loving, but because it would be destructive to my marriage to have an affair, I will say vocally or in the silence of my heart, I feel like loving you, again, feeling, but I'm not going to. My feelings of love may be unbounded, but my capacity to be loving is limited. I therefore must choose the person on whom to focus my capacity to love toward whom to direct my will to love. True love is not a feeling by which we are overwhelmed. It is a committed, thoughtful decision. Here's a little assignment. Go up and look how many times in scripture it says in love. It's zero. The scriptures don't talk about being in love. Love is a volitional act of the will that we give to someone. We am go I'm going to love you. I'm gonna lay down my life for you. Maybe this morning you've replaced love for just superficial emotion. And maybe you've left your first love. Thirdly, here's what else we replace love with. Thirdly, we replace love with labor. And this was prescriptive of Ephesus. They had gotten so tied down with heretic hunting that they forgot the churches where people experience the love of God and the love of God's people. How many pastors, if you ask them, hey, what's your day off? They'll stare at you with kind of a blank stare as if you said, did you watch Breaking Bad this week? They'll kind of go, uh, I don't know how to answer that. I'm not sure what to say. But we could also ask many of the husbands in the church, do you take a date night? Do you take a day off? Uh, do you spend time with family? A lot of us are inundated with diligent busy work. You know what busy work is at work, right? It's work you give someone to just make them do stuff. Like you got a new temp. Hey, I've got some busy work. What should we do? I don't know. Let's, you need to take all the files out of the cabinet, rearrange them alphabetically, and then when you're done with that, put them all back, right? It's just busy work. Give them something to do. And often that's what we find ourselves doing for the Lord instead of choosing what is better. We replace love with labor. Finally, number four, we replace love with indifference. And we become numb to the things of God. Why? Because they become familiar. Instead of keeping our zeal for the Lord as we serve him, we get bored with the same old, same old. Listen, when there's a disinterest in your heart for the things of God, it's time for a renewing of your mind. Can I say that again? When there's a disinterest in your heart for the things of God, it's time for a renewing of your mind. The church in Ephesus had warm hands, but they had cold hearts. Does that describe you today in your relationship with God? Just think about this. In a love relationship, there's different stages, or even in marriage. I think we have them on the screen. There's three different stages in marriage or love. There's the honeymoon stage. That's when you first get married and your wife, you know, looks into your eyes and she's, you've been kind of sick and so you, you blew your nose and there's a little nose hair sticking out, right? And so the honeymoon stage, she goes, oh, it's so cute. Look at the way his little, his little nose hair is sticking out. Oh, it's so adorable. Let me get my tweezers out and let me delicately trim it and, and use my skill and care and, and uh, all my TLC to take care of his little nostril hair, right? That's, that's the honeymoon stage. Then there's the familiarity stage. It's been about five years. And she's looking at him lovingly and a little resentfully. And, um, you know, she uh, notices that little nose hair. And she smirks. She lets out a little giggle. And uh, then she goes into her bathroom and uh, says, here, honey, you need to take care of this. Okay, then there's the third stage, the impassivity stage, just impassive. And so what she does is she stares blankly into her roommate's eyes, his beady little eyes. And there's that stupid nose hair. I wish you would deal with that. 
She sighs heavily, rolls her eyes, and reaches over and yanks it out of his nose, to which he screams and runs out of the room, okay? <laughs> Silly example, but every relationship, you kind of go through those three different stages. And we go through impassive indifference. And we listen, we lose our fervor because we forget. We lose our fervor because we forget. Someone said this, <laughs> this love at first sight is easy to understand. It's when two people have been looking at each other for years that it becomes a miracle. <laughs> Love that. Let's see Jesus' correction. Look at verse five. Jesus says, remember, that's the first thing, remember from where you've fallen. Secondly, repent, do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. Three R's. First, remember. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Often, my wife Jen and I will look back and we'll remember our wedding day uh, or the first few years of our marriage, we pull up pictures or letters or those Facebook memories that always get you, right? We'll look those up and we'll, we'll think about them and we'll celebrate anniversaries, special dates. How about in your relationship with the Lord? Do you do that? Uh, are there times that you journal and look back at your journal or your Bible notes that you take so diligently? Maybe conferences or camps or missions trips or, or, or worship moments where, man, the Lord was really speaking to me. We need to remember. Secondly, he says, repent. That means to turn away. Uh, to turn away from what? From forsaking your first love. Now, this morning, we need to acknowledge and own up to the fact that we may have fallen away. Again, we haven't lost our first love, but we've left it. We've drifted. We've allowed things to creep in. We need to turn away from that. We need to repent. The third R is to return. He says, you need to do the first works or return. Do the things that you did when you first fell madly in love with your spouse or when you first dedicated your life to the Lord. Um, taking the time to tell others about him, just spending time. Listen, if we don't do those things, there's a fourth R. Notice it's remove. I'll remove your lampstand. That's immediate judgment. Your witness will cease to exist. The light would, and influence will fade. And sadly, guys, that's exactly what happened. We opened with Ephesians chapter six, just 30 years after their incorruptible love would receive grace, that love had become corrupted and they had left and neglected their first love. And this morning, in a group this size, there's no doubt, some here today, you find yourself a part of this worship service, maybe invited, maybe you've been a part of us for a while, and you're serving and doing all these things, but you know the coldness of your heart, you've drifted from the Lord Jesus. See, today, God wants to restore you into a right relationship with his son, Jesus. This morning, there may be someone who Maybe your marriage relationship is indicative of this. Maybe it's connected with your marriage. You've had some struggles and you've had some issues. And really you blame your spouse, but really it's you. It's you walking away from the Lord. And the closer you draw close to the Lord, the closer you actually draw to your spouse. See, there's great news, gang. There's a crown. Look at verse seven. The final idea is that there's a crown. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The crown is the right to eat from the tree of life. See, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. He's gonna say that a lot. Now, most of us have ears, okay? This is a statement Jesus would say to mean if you really wanna capture this, listen up and listen intently. The reward, the crown, is the right to eat from the tree of life in God's garden. See, Adam and Eve were never given that right because they forsook their first love and disobeyed in rebellion against God. Now, if they would have eaten after the tree of knowledge of good and evil, if they would have eaten of the tree of life, they would have been forever stuck perpetually in a state of separation 
from God. So God banished them from the garden after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this morning, uh, if we would overcome our cold hearts for God, return to our first love, I think that he would allow us access one day to the tree of life and that intimacy with him can be restored. Isn't that incredible? God wants intimacy with his people. He wants to be a friend to us. Now, when he says friendship, it's always God initiating. God wants to be friends with us. He wants us as friends. We don't casually say, I'm friends with God. No, I'm friends because he calls me friend. I love that. I love that picture that he loves me completely. He loves you completely. And his love has no end. See, gang, the church in Ephesus had turned their attention from Jesus to the busyness of life, to all the stuff that had to get done. And as we close this morning, I wanna invite the band forward to close us in song. And I think that may be indicative of where some of us here uh, are this morning. But just for a minute, can we allow there to be some introspection in our own lives? Just for a minute, can we ask the Holy Spirit, as David did in Psalm 139, to search me, O God, and know me, and see if there's any of this in me. Is there any wicked way in me? Am I straying? Am I turning? Have I neglected my first love? Have I left it? There's an interesting story that parallels what we're talking about. As you close your Bibles and get settled for a minute, I want to share this interesting historical phenomenon that's happened in the last dozen or so years in Central Asia. There's a fishing port on the Aral Sea called Muinak. Today, according to the Washington Post, this fishing port sits on the edge of a bitter, salty desert. You can see the lake there. On the left, it's back in the 80s, and here, 20 years later, even now 30 years later, it's completely dried up. Things began changing about 30 years ago. There were Stalinist planters that began diverting the water of the lake away from the water source to irrigate the world's largest cotton belt. And no one envisioned when they started steering the water away from the sea that this would cause this environmental disaster. It's so crazy that as time has gone on, the growing season began to get short, shorter and shorter. And you can even see the ships now left on the sand dunes of the desert because the water line has receded. 80% of the region's farmland ruined by salt storms that sweep across the dry seabed. Let me leave that picture up for a minute. Maybe a picture of maybe your heart here today. You've been active and doing things for the Lord, but see, the source of life has dried up and you still try to engineer that same effort apart from his grace. And what happened at Muinach parallels the history of the church at Ephesus. See, they were a thriving spiritual community, but they diverted their attention the source away from Christ to works done in his name. They lost sight of what was most important in their relationship with Christ, their love for him. And this morning, the Lord wants us to experience something so much deeper than religion. He wants a relationship with us. And the question is, do you want that too? You need to remember where you used to be and repent and turn back, return to your first love, the pure love, the love that never lets you go, the love that accepts you even here this morning with all of your rebellion and coldness toward him, your indifference. He loves you and church, he's inviting you to come back. And so would you bow your heads with me? There may be someone here today who's never received Jesus. I want you to know that you stand condemned today 
eternally separated from God, you will experience torment in a place called hell. But see, there's incredible news. Jesus took the torment for you, not hell, but death. Jesus died on the cross, and better than that, he rose again. And he invites you to place your faith in him. And by placing your faith in him, you will be risen spiritually. You'll be born again by the Spirit of God. Is there anyone here today who's never received Jesus? And today, you wanna know Jesus. You wanna experience eternal life. You don't wanna spend eternity in hell, but in heaven with Jesus. And you've never received him. Would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Is there anyone here today? You've never received Christ as Savior. I want this opportunity to be given to you. It doesn't matter if you're younger or older, been a part of the church for years. This isn't, this is the time for you. Today is the day of salvation for someone. Would you raise your hand? Anyone? While our heads are bowed, I can surmise that maybe you've made that decision. You've given your life to Christ, but you know what? There's been a drifting. There's been a diversion from the source. And like those ships, you're still trying to do the same flurry of activity, but everything's dry. You're separated from the Lord. He won't separate himself from you, but see, our sins will separate us from him. And today, would you acknowledge where you're at? Would you repent? Would you remember your relationship with the Lord? Would you return? Maybe there's someone here today that we need to take that prideful, breaking step of raising our hand and saying, yeah, that's me, man, I need prayer. I need to return to Jesus. I see hands going up. Anyone else? Just acknowledge today's the day. I see your hands. Anyone else? Today's the day. Let's raise our hands in humility and acknowledge I'm drifting. Lord, forgive me. I want that right relationship with you. You've never let me go. You never will let me go. You've got me in your hand. Let me pray for you who've raised their hands. Lord, thank you for the humility of those who have raised their hand. They want a right relationship with you. We all do, Lord. We long to know you. Forgive us, Lord, that we just get cold in our hearts while our hands are warm and working. Forgive us, Lord. We wanna remember where we used to be and repent and return. We don't want our lamps and our influence to be removed, Lord. We wanna be effective for you. But first, we wanna <laughs> be just overwhelmed in our love for you. So forgive us, Lord. We return to you. We love you. We pray that our love for you would be kind of a flame that it's ignited today. Lord, passion for you, not emotion. Emotion's gonna be there, but Lord, that our passion for you would find itself fleshing out in everyday life, in our deeds and in our witness and in our, our relationships, in our lives and our lips. Lord, I commit those to you who have raised their hand. Would you draw them back to you? And Lord, during this next song, may we just embrace our love for you. Embrace who you are, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. Visit us Sundays at 10 a.m. at 5100 Lakewood Ranch Boulevard. For more content or to learn more about Jesus, visit our website. This is shoreline.com.